Hello, everybody. You're listening to Angel Nears. We're a podcast that brings together startup builders and experienced operators to share key insights on how to build and scale your startups. I'm your host, Oleg Kujikov, and our guest today is Mickey W. Mantle, the co-author of Managing the Unmanageable, Rules, Tools, and Insights for Managing Software, People, and Teams. Mickey's been developing software for more than 40 years as a software and hardware product creator, manager, and executive for companies that include Evans & Sutherland, Pixar, Broderbund, and Gracenote. He currently develops mobile and tablet applications, writes, and consults. Today, we're talking with Mickey about how programming managers should manage upward, outward, and yourself to become more effective managers. Before we get into that, Mickey, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's great to be here. Excited to have you. I'd like to learn a little bit more about you. So let's start here. How did you get started with software in the first place? Well, I'm going to rewind a little bit before that, actually. So I was a child of the 50s and 60s. And uh, as you might imagine, one of the most important parts of our life at that point in time was music. As a matter of fact, I, uh, I learned to play the guitar when I was 11. And uh, by the time I was 15, I was teaching guitar and playing in a band and uh, did that and put myself through high school and college playing and teaching music. And that's been an important part of my life. And we'll touch on that later because it becomes important in a technical sense as well. So I've always enjoyed, you know, reading and math and engineering. And so I went to the University of Utah, uh, which turns out was the birthplace of 3D computer graphics. There were little spots of it around the country before that, but most of it was analog. And this was the first place that actually did digital 3D graphics. Now today, we all have it on our computers, but back then, it really was only available to a handful of people. And I happened to be one of them who was studying there, and one of the guys who uh, helped invent the whole thing, Ivan Sutherland, was there, along with his, uh, his cohort, Dave Evans, who was the chairman of the department there. And it was a very interesting time at the University of Utah, and there were a lot of interesting people there. Uh, for example, Alan Ashton was my uh, senior advisor. He was a co- he was the co-founder of WordPerfect. I was also a student along with Ed Catmull, co-founder of Pixar, and uh, later uh, vice president of Disney. Jim Clark, who of course co-founded uh, Silicon Graphics and then went on to WebMD and other great things. Oh, and uh, let's not forget Netscape along the way there as well. John Warnock, uh, who co-founded Adobe Systems, and there are many others I could go on and on about. But it, it was an interesting time, a lot of interesting people, and uh, all of us kind of gravitated towards technical work. When I graduated, I uh, went to work almost immediately at, not surprisingly, Evans and Sutherland. They were a, a startup at the time, and... Uh, kind of a theme through all the companies I've ever worked for have been startups, at least when I've been there at the early days. Everson Sutherland actually is still in business this very day. They were founded in 68, so that makes them probably a little over 50 years old. And they're making digital planetariums now, 3D planetariums, I might add. So uh, interesting company there. And then I went to uh, Pixar, where I was in the early team, as it was spun out from Lucasfilm. 
and brought up on software where I was recruited away after Pixar became an animation studio. And I had a chance to go head up a team as CTO and vice president of engineering that included not only programming, but also animation, sound and music, uh, going back to my musical roots again. And uh, a lot of uh, product creation for that company there. They were one of the high fine companies on CD-ROMs in the 90s. I was then recruited into a company called Grace Note, which uh, most people don't really know it, but it was a principal factor in the success of the initial iPod and the iPhone. We licensed technology to them to allow them to identify music. And uh, that was, of course, a very important and still is to the iPhone. While I was at uh, Broderbund, I, I met this guy called Ron Lichty. And uh, he was then working at a company called Berkeley Systems, which did flying toaster screensavers for computers. And he, he liked to make a point that probably at that point in time, we had eyes on our software between his flying toasters and screensavers that were around the world and our multimedia products than probably almost any other company with a, aside from Microsoft. And in meeting Ron, we, we became friends. We were both technical guys and we would meet occasionally for a weekend breakfast uh, chats. And we would not only have breakfast, we'd take and talk about the problems we were having and the issues we were having and and so forth. And we became good friends and trusted confidants on our issues that we had. And what occurred to us is that, in fact, there were no real good books about how to manage programmers. Now, by that point in time, we'd both been doing it for quite a while. Ron had come up managing ranks through Apple Computer and then Charles Schwab. And I, of course, have been through the companies we talked about working my way up from a programmer, a systems programmer, into a manager, and then vice president of uh, engineering by the time I, I ran into Ron. So we were bothly, both mostly full-time managers at that point in time. And, but we, we wanted to create a book, and that's what Managing the Unmanageable is, that we wish we had when we were first starting to manage programmers. Because... We had to figure it out all on our own. There weren't a lot of websites, there weren't a lot of blogs at that point in time. And so we set out to write this book. Now, it turns out that Ron had co-authored a, a couple of books about assembly language programming, relevant but a little far afield. And I had managed the production of the book for Pixar called The, the Render Man's Companion. And it turns out that the editor of our books was the same guy, uh, Peter Gordon. And so we approached Peter with the idea for a book, actually a series of books. And he said, sure, uh, it sounds like a good idea. Why don't you go ahead and do it? Now, without an advance and mostly on our own time, uh, on weekends and stolen away at nights and so forth, we managed to finally create a draft of our book which took us about 10 years. And Peter Gordon, editor of Addison Wesley, agreed to publish it, and it was finally published in 2011. This book has a lot of things that, like I said, we wish we had learned before we had to learn them by experience.
And among them are why managing software is so hard and what is it all about and what are programmers all about? How do you understand programmers? So, so we laid out a, a, an outline and a series of uh, nine chapters at that point in time to take and bring anyone along to the process of becoming a seasoned, becoming a seasoned manager of programmers. Can you answer this? What makes programmers unmanageable? It's not the programmers are unmanageable, it turns out. It's really more the software that's unmanageable. And, and there's lots of things that contribute to it. First of all, what, what, what is programming all about? Well, one of the quotes in our book that start the book out is it's writing a new program from scratch is akin to writing a novel. So you have a blank sheet of paper and what do you do? Well, there are lots of things you can do. I will get into some of that about what's happening today later. But uh, another quote that's right up front in our book which is the programmer, like the poet, works only slightly removed from pure thought stuff. This was uh, uh, written by a guy by the name of Frederick Burks, and he wrote a book that inspired us to write this one, which was The Mythical Man Month. And anyone who hasn't read The Mythical Man Month should do it. It's well over 50 years now and uh, old, but still relevant today, although you have to read between the lines a little bit more than you did back then. So really, because software is really very intangible, it's hard to take and manage what people are doing in their head. So you have to put proxies in place, project plans, you have to put design, flowcharts, used to be the, the go-to medium. Of course, that's long since uh, gone by the wayside. And as programmers, you have to take and learn, as a manager, you have to learn how to treat programmers with respect and also to take and guide them to do the right things. So what makes software so hard is often not just the programmers, but also the expectation of management. Most projects that are undertaken today are late. They're not just a little bit late, some are years late. Is that because the programmers just didn't know what they're doing? Or was it also because they were given bad deadlines by management because they had to have the project done? It turns out giving programmers a fiat of it's got to be done by this date doesn't work very well. So can you talk about like what successful product management looks like now or program management now? What does that look like? What does it feel like when you're doing this well? Well, today there are a lot of processes in place that help a lot. The whole field of agile software development, which uh, came to be in about the year 2000, when a group of software developers and got together and laid out what they call the software, Agile Software Manifesto. And uh, by following the principles they set down, people have taken, turned that into a practice and a process by which you can more successfully develop software. And what that key to that is the fact that you break the software not into one big project, but into many small projects. And each one has deliverables that you take and understand 
You may not be able to deliver them to a customer, but they're an internal delivery. You can see how well it's going, putting tangibility back into uh, this thought stuff that programmers write. Right. So this is like the difference between Scrum and Waterfall. Exactly. Yeah. So you lived through this kind of, you lived through 2000, right? And you kind of saw programmers before and programmers after that change. Can you talk about that? Like, what has that done for software development? Well, it's it's done a lot of things. We can get into the pluses and minuses of current software development later, but the, the process itself has made it much more feasible to take and make projects. Now, I also believe that there's still a place for waterfall. And as a matter of fact, I always uh, practiced a process I called Wagile, which was a little bit of waterfall and a lot of Agile. And that means that sometimes you have to know what you're actually going to build at the end because Agile software doesn't really have all the requirements up front. But sometimes if you're doing something for a consumer electronics device, for example, which I was doing at GraceNote, you really have to know what it's going to be at the end. And you have to make commitments to customers who are banking on that, who have schedules that last out for years based upon your deliverables. So you have to be able to come through with it. So I believe in a, in a hybrid approach of trying to make sure you have as many of the requirements as possible up front, but then breaking the project up into agile sprints, if you will. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So we'll put a pin in, you know, the pluses and minuses of agile today, because I do agree. I think um, just agile is not exactly the answer to software development, but let's talk about programming disciplines. So, Nobody likes to be put in a box, but can you tell me, like, tell me more about programming disciplines? What should I know about the different types of programmers? Sure. First, let's just touch on one other thing, which uh, a lot of people use the terms interchangeably, and that's software engineer and programmer. And we wrote our book, we consciously made the decision to use this term programmer and not software engineer. And there's a couple of reasons for it. First of all, Engineers are licensed, you know, electrical engineers, uh, civil engineers. They go through not only education, but also a course of licensing that makes sure they understand what they actually were taught. There's no such thing as for programmers. So you have to start off understanding that anyone can be a programmer. Okay, that means even if they can't program. So, so you have to start off by understanding what programmers are all about, you know, the different types of programmers, you know, there's, there's like front end programmers and back end programmers and DevOps programmers, DevSec programmers, uh, development security programmers. And, you know, these all have special skills and tools they use. So you have to understand enough about software to be able to put them into categories. Our book helps you do that. There also, you have to think about the people, not just as programmers, but as people. There are different types of people. Some are morning people, some are night people, some are cowboys, some are introverts, some are extroverts. And you have to understand what each individual programmer is and the kind of person he is able to manage them effectively. So I'll give you tips on 
on identifying my book and, and also types to avoid, such as jerks and other types of programmers that you really, we recommend if you take and find you've got some that you get rid of them. How about hiring? You mentioned, you know, hiring and, and even getting rid of uh, jerks, which sounds like it makes sense. Can you talk about finding and hiring great programmers? We actually devote a chapter in our book to this topic alone. But I have to say, it's always been hard to find good programmers. It's always been almost impossible to find great programmers. But it's getting harder, but also easier as well in, in certain ways. Now, I'll go into that. But the answer isn't, in spite of what your television might tell you, Indeed, Indeed can help you find resumes, but it can't necessarily help you find great programmers. So first of all, you have to look at not just what's on the resume. You have to understand the person who's behind the resume. You have to understand how smart they are, what their body of work has been. Some of my most enjoyable successes, if you will, is I make and don't hire programmers. I, I make them by having interns who are in school, you bring in to see if they're really doing well, and then you bring them in another year, or you bring them back as a full-time employee, and and then they, you can teach them the right things to do, as opposed to hiring somebody with 15 years experience who has learned all the wrong things to do. So we, whenever possible, I, I'm a big believer in having internships and also doing college recruiting. Uh, great companies have college recruiting programs to go out and look for outstanding talent and try to recruit it in. Uh, that's become more and more competitive nowadays. Of course, the whole programming field is more competitive nowadays because it's becoming highly paid. And also, which we'll touch again on in a little while, is the new normal remote work has made it both easier and harder to hire programmers. But we have another thing, and that's uh, a, a kind of a rule of thumb that we always like to refer to, which is always be recruiting. Finding and hiring great programmers, when you can find a great programmer, they're worth up to 10 times other programmers. I have had several that have been like that, and I can tell you it does happen. Um, well, that that's promising. My, my next question is like, the book was published in 2011, like you mentioned. Has anything changed? I mean, obviously, COVID kind of throws a, a wrench into the whole process. But has anything changed since you published the book about how you find and hire programmers? Or has it not? Well, actually, we, we put out a second edition. We updated a lot of stuff in the book, including some of the engineering disciplines that some of the titles had changed. Some of the disciplines had, had developed that weren't there before, like DevOps. And so we've updated it, and we also added a book on Agile, how to manage Agile and the role of a manager when he's uh, in an Agile development uh, process. So, yeah, a lot of things have changed, but I think probably the biggest change has been the massive migration to remote work. Now, I, I keep track of this very carefully because I'm very interested in it. And some people in large companies believe that remote work is going to go away and that it will come back mostly on site. Well, I'm not a believer in that. I think that 
once once they've seen Perry, it's hard to keep them back on the farm. Or in this case, once they've been able to work at home, it's hard to get them to come into work every day. I do believe that hybrid work is more reasonable, wherein you have people on site part of the time, but off site most of the time. Now, a lot of many co companies have been doing this forever. Uh, for example, GitLab is a company where uh, some of the people who used to work for me at GraceNote went to work, and I interviewed them recently about their experience working in this completely remote environment. And they found it challenging, but they wouldn't go back. So having to manage programmers who you can't talk to every day in person, you can't wander around and just check in on them, see how they're doing, which is one of my major management skills is I used to wander around and talk to people and just get a sense for exactly if anybody's stuck or not. Now you have to find other ways to do that. And so having managers adopt new processes, procedures, and practices to take and make remote work feasible and effective, more importantly, is one of the biggest challenges today. We're, we're actually uh, working on a chapter to add to our book about working remotely and managing remotely. It's really cool to see that you're amending your book, not just once, but multiple times. Let's get into managing down, and then we'll get a, get into managing up, managing out, and managing yourself. Typically, when we think about management, we think of managing downward. You know, uh, you're delegating things. We'll talk about how that's not the only part of the job, but nonetheless, what, what kind of advice do you have for managing downward? Well, for most managers, as you just said, managing down is what they do almost exclusively. You know, it's the essence of a good software manager's job, managing his programmers, managing the projects that are going on. But really, in order to do a good job as a pro programming manager, a good job as a programming manager, you have to be an effective communicator. I'm always reminded, you may not even remember the song at this point, but there was a song by 10CC where there was a key line in it that communication is the problem to the answer. And every time I hear that song or every time I think about that song, I think that's what programming is all about. It's about communicating not only to down, but also up and out, which we'll talk about as well. But communications, it starts with communications. You have to have a effective means to communicate. And the other part of managing down is that you have to have what I believe is an ethical, moral compass. You have to try to do the right things. And sometimes the right things are not the things your boss wants to hear, not the things the company wants to hear, but it's the right things to get the project done and to take care of your people. So being ethical and taking good care of your programming team is what it's really all about. To be a good manager, if you're doing that, you're taking care of the team, not only in how their software is going, but also how's their career going? How, what aspirations do they have? How can you help facilitate their training or their learning or their opportunities? I had many times when I actually had to or coach people who came in to resign 
to effectively do that as opposed to try to retain them because they'd reached a point where their skills weren't as effective either in the company or that they had opportunities that were greater than I could provide to them. So you have to take care of your people sometimes, again, against the, the needs of your company or the needs of your organization. Another important thing for managing down is how to motivate your teams. And Ron and I did a lot of research about this, and we touched on various theories about motivation. There's Maslow's hierarchy of needs. You know, uh, we all hear about that all the time. We talk about that. Uh, there's McGregor's XY theory, which is about servant leadership, which is the kind of the basis of agile methodologies. But we really liked a lot. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm going to need you to expand. I'm going to need you to expand on that. Uh, McGregor's XY theory. <laughs> so, so basically, the XY theory, McGregor's XY theory, really talks about how there's top-down management, and then there's servant management, where you provide for your people and encourage them and coach them to do the right things and that they will do a better job. So it, uh, I, I often think of XY management when I think of, I, I, did, I spent a lot of time in Japan working with companies in Japan and we had our own uh, division Japan. And there, the office manager, no matter how much I can encourage him, he had to be top down. It was part of his culture, very hierarchical. And so I would help try to facilitate that as best I could. But why theory why as opposed where you're taking and pushing as a servant, pushing encouragement and empowerment up to your team is really the way you want to go. Both of these theories uh, are discussed in our book, as well as the third one, which is Herzberg's foundational factors and true motivators theory. He, he was a true original thinker in uh, motivational theory. And what he discovered or what he put out in a paper that was a landmark paper was that in fact, the things that motivate are not necessarily the things which keep you from motivating. So there are a bunch of foundational factors like you know, a good office environment, comparable pay, adequate pay, good management, basic things he called foundational factors that have to be in place before you can actually put in place the things that truly motivate people to do more. Uh, things such as providing education, opportunity, empowerment, the ability to learn and work. And so we embraced that. We actually modified his theory representation to adapt it to software to make it more understandable in a software and startup environment. So that's kind of a unique aspect of our book. But bottom line in managing down, the thing that we always think that makes a great technical manager is if they have the technical respect of their staff, of the people who work for them. Now, what that means is it's hard to come in as somebody who was a salesman and be a good software manager because <laughs> you don't understand what they're doing. You, you can't 
relate to them as well. You can't look to see if they're having problems and they won't respect you. And how, do, how am I so convinced that in fact, technical respect is, is the key? Well, I'm sure you've heard or watched or looked at Dilbert cartoons. The one thing that you'll never see in a Dilbert cartoon is him respecting his boss. No, no one in that office respects the boss. Exactly. And he, he's a buffoon and, and an icon of, you know, uh, just doing stupid things and saying stupid things. Well, that's why if you have technical respect, you know that you're not a Dilbert boss. Awesome. So we've talked about the uh, the managing down, but... Other parts of management are kind of less well-trodden. And so let's talk about those areas. What are the core tenets for an effective programming manager for managing up? And what does managing up even mean? Well, up is the opposite of down, right? So we have a couple of quotes in our book. The, the one that leads off the chapter on managing up is the single most important leader in an organization is your immediate supervisor. And I always like to... Well, I'll come back to that in a minute. So I, the, your most your immediate supervisor is the most important uh, person to you and your career. They have more influence over it. They can provide opportunities for you or they can blacklist you. Okay, so you have to learn to manage your boss. And what we mean by that, by managing up, it's not only your boss, but your boss's boss as well, and perhaps all the way up through the board. If you're the right uh, at the right level in the organization to talk to them, but to manage your boss, what you have to do is you have to start off with finding what works for both of you. That is, find a cadence for communication, a format. Do you want it written? Do you want it verbal? What boundaries are there? When can you contact them? If you have a problem, when can they contact you? When is appropriate for them to contact you? And to work out these boundaries so that you're both happy with them. And another important thing to do is volunteer to help them with problems that they have. Now, you're going to have your plate full managing your own problems. So it's hard to find time to manage your boss's problems or help with managing those problems. But you can. And I've done that a dozen times in various ways with people I reported to. The other thing you have to ensure is a communication within the organization, not just between you and your boss or whoever you report to, but the communication flows up and down the organization. You have to report what you're hearing from your teams so they know what's going on, not just with you, but with your teams. And they have to communicate what's going on with their boss and perhaps even at the board of directors. If there's Directives, you have to, we have to be profitable by this time. You have to understand those things to help manage effectively. So understanding what is important to them, understanding what is important to their boss for them, what's going to make them look good so that you can help make that happen. These are all things to help, tools to help manage your boss more effectively. And if you do this, it's probably going to have more impact on your career than anything else. And I have, you know, one single thing to offer to you. It's a, a golden rule, literally, 
and that's doing to others as you have them doing to you. So if you treat your boss with respect, they're going to treat you with respect. If you do things for him, they're going to be more likely to do things for you. So, you know, think of that going up. It's also a good rule for going down. You have to manage your boss. That's like mind-blowing. Let's talk about managing out. So an effective manager of programmers also needs to be able to manage out uh, both inside and outside of the organization. Can, can you talk about that? What, is, what does that mean and, and what are the core tenets? So anyone within an organization has peers. Now, if you're a, a line software manager, meaning you just manage a team of programmers, your peers are probably other programming managers. Okay. But that doesn't mean there aren't peers throughout the organization who are at the same level with you, have the same kind of influence on their teams as you do. And taking and branching out beyond just your peers and getting to know them and working with them will pay dividends over time. And the higher you get up within an organization, the more effective this becomes. And I'll give you an example of that. In my years as vice president of engineering, Okay, one of the first things I did was I made an ally out of the department head of HR. Human resources controlled raises. They controlled a lot of things in some of the companies I worked in. And I wanted to understand what they could do and what they couldn't do. And so I would establish alliances with them by helping them with things much like would help my boss, I would help them uh, with reports or with, with feedback. And they would in turn help me. And I found that to be one of the most important things I ever did. Another key ally I had as a vice president of engineering and as a CTO was my CFO, the guy in charge of finances. I always had a budget, but quite frankly, you know what, in most high tech companies, they don't expect managers to look at budgets. Budgets are dominated by headcount. They look at the number of people you have. They don't really look at the salaries so much. But sometimes there are budgetary issues. I need a new tool and it's going to cost me $150,000. Can I do that? I don't have budget for it. So I'd have to go convince my CFO and he would find money for me for tools like that that were important to the organization, not just important to me. So getting these key allies in HR, finance, sales, marketing, technical support, knowing so to invite them to lunch, go out to lunch with them. Don't just treat them as an ally, treat them as a friend. And some of my best friends are to this very day are former HR and CFOs. How about outside of the organization? Well, there's a lot of uh, outside people to take and worry about as well. One of the most important things for a technical person is vendors. They make tools, they provide software to you that you depend upon. If there's a problem in the software, you got to get it fixed. It's not as common as it used to be, but the number of times I would find problems in Microsoft or Apple products, tools or compilers that I had to find a fix for that would have prevented me from shipping a product that was uncountable. By the way, they still have problems. There are other, other things are uh, customers. Some customers are important in reaching out to them and getting to know them. Some of the customers I had 
at various companies, became some of my best friends ever. Uh, one in particular sent an email the other day because something crossed my computer that made me think about him. He and I go to Giants baseball games occasionally, and so they can become lasting friends in addition to allies. Also, there's a lot of management and technical organizations. Uh, I've been, for my entire career, a professional member of the Association for Computing Machinery, ACL, and the IEEE, that's uh, for electronic engineers, because I, uh, I studied electrical engineering as well as programming in college. And these organizations provide several things. They provide a way to network with other people outside your organization. They provide education. Uh, I get magazines from the ACM, the communications that tell me about the latest happenings in the technical and computer world from IEEE about the latest happening in the hardware and software world. And there are also other types of organizations. I, I might also add, I've tried to be part of these organizations as well. For example, right now, I'm the vice chair of the IEEE East Bay group. So, uh, so uh, that means I'm part of their uh, meetings and try to help facilitate and make sure that the education is getting out to the members of the IEEE. There's also affinity groups, you know, uh, one that Ron is a co-chair of is the Silicon Valley Engineering Leadership Community, which provides now mostly Zoom meetings. They're hoping to get back to in-person meetings sometime. And the, down in the Silicon Valley, I attended one of their meetings last night. There are also many other, too many uh, affinity groups to take and list nowadays. The, the hard part's choosing them. The hard part isn't finding them. But also universities, getting alliances within universities. I've had professors of computer science who would identify upcoming students for me and say, here's a franchise player. You should hire them before they would start the recruiting process. So I'd have, you know, first dubs on some incredible talent by forming those liaisons. As well, industry consortiums and, and things. There's, uh, I was a member of a graphic standards committee when I was at Evans and Sutherland, where I met a lot of people creating computer graphic standards that I was worried about we might have to adhere to in Evans and Sutherland. Uh, we never did, thank God because it was a, a nightmare what they were trying to develop. But I did make friendships there, some of whom are still good friends today. And then last but not least is local connections. There's, there's meetups and there's, there's ways to meet people locally. And we encourage you to go out of your way to make those local connections, especially when I was hiring people right now in the new normal. Uh, I'm not necessarily looking for local connections, so I'm not as out in the community as I was. But that doesn't mean that we're not doing what the other thing that Ron and I always said, this is one of our basic rules of thumb. Always be recruiting. So in all of these organizations I was talking about, meeting people, finding pointers to people you might know, pointing out that you're looking for people, always be recruiting. That's the first job of a great manager. Good, simple advice. I mean, it's it's there's so many opportunities, right? That was a lot. There was opportunities to manage outward 
Uh, we started with inside the organization. There's plenty of opportunities outside of the organization. We talked about managing up. We talked about managing down. But there's still one area of management we still haven't covered. So talk to me about managing yourself. What should I know? First of all, you thought managing programmers was hard. So I, I think managing yourself is the hardest. Why, why is that? Well, a lot of times... In fact, I, I'm probably a poster child for taking and devoting myself to my work way too much. Okay, and so I would always put my family second. I had a couple divorces because of that. I would always put my health second. I gained weight I shouldn't have. I didn't eat as well as I should have. So, you know... Knowing yourself is the way to start at managing yourself. And I have a tip that I'm going to provide to you guys. Uh, imagine, if you will, now close your eyes unless you're driving a car, and imagine the equilateral triangle. That's a triangle where all three sides are the same length. Okay, and on the bottom of that, imagine you write the word self. On the left-hand side of that, Imagine that you write the word work. On the right-hand side of that triangle, imagine you write the word family. Now, as you all know, a triangle is the strongest form of structure. Pyramids weren't built that way for nothing. So if you can be Balanced, that is, if all of the sides are the same length in relation to how you wish to measure it, the amount of time you think about it, the amount of time you spend with them, the amount of time you and energy you devote to them. So if all those sides are equal, you'll have a pretty balanced life because you'll have time in there for yourself. You'll have time in there for your work. You'll have time in there for your family. But if you sense one of those sides shrinking or two of them shrinking and the other one getting longer in proportion, well, you know you're out of balance. So the key to managing yourself is try to find balance in your life. It's really just a question of balance. And you have to consciously work at this. Now, I retired from my 40-hour-a-week job 10 years ago. And I found that I never knew how I got, had a full-time job thereafter. There were so many things for my family and for myself that I wanted to do. How would I have done it if I was working full time? So the key is to find that balance, keep it in balance, and work at it. Now, one of the important things in working at that is to make conscious choices. Okay? That is, what's your personal style like? How do you want to be? You know, are you ethical? What's important? What's urgent? How do you deal with those kinds of things? Do you listen well? Do you listen reflectively? These are all, all important conscious choices that will make you better at managing yourself. 
And also, you have to make time to think about managing yourself. If necessary, set up an appointment on your calendar once a week where you think about, am I doing the right things? Am I getting enough exercise? Am I taking the right educational classes I need to take? What do I need to change to make my life more effective? What do I need to change to make my work more effective? What do I need to change to make my family uh, feel more loved and, and, and be there for them? So it's all about making conscious choices. That's really good advice. So we're kind of wrapping up the interview. I, I have a question I typically ask, which is, you know, if you could go back 20 years and give, uh, you know, yourself advice from 20 years ago, what, what would you tell yourself? I'm going to slightly tweak it because this, this conversation is really important to me, actually, because I, when I'm not doing podcasting, I'm a scrum master for uh, software development teams. So... What advice would you give me uh, as as a scrum master kind of finding his way in in industry in the uh, in the agile world? I think it goes back to making conscious choices, okay? Too many people are reactive and not active. Consciously choosing what to do. And if you find yourself reacting as opposed to acting, you know you're off on the wrong path. Now, as a scrum master, you're supposed to be in charge of certain things. You're supposed to delegate certain things. You're supposed to let other things happen and just, you know, be part of them. So you need to make sure you set the boundaries appropriately and work at them. But the other kind of stepping back away from the specifics about being a scrum master, everyone should have a life plan of some sort. Like, what do I really want to do? What really makes me happy? And how do I get there? And uh, my wife and I, I always talk about this as the North Star. When you know what you really want to do, you have a North Star to guide you. And without that North Star, you find yourself meandering. You find yourself getting off course. Find your North Star and then learn as much as you can about that. Learn what it takes to be successful. Uh, one of the keys we put in our book on managing yourself is find a mentor. Find someone who can help you succeed at that. That's some great advice. Mickey, this has been a great conversation. The listeners have been with us now for uh, the whole podcast. So do you have uh, any anything you'd like them to do? If, if someone's listening, what would you ask them to do? First of all, I would say if you haven't seen our book, uh, I think it's a classic. A lot of people have told us this is a classic up there with Fred Brooks' uh, Mythical Man Month and other books of the ilk that are notable and worth having. Most importantly, I think that if anyone were to look at our book, that we, we designed it so there were chapters with, with prose, but we started off trying to write a book about rules of thumb and nuggets of wisdom, and we filled a section of the book, it's actually got different shaded pages filled with wisdom, not from us. There's a couple here or there from Ron and I. But most of this is from others about how to manage effectively, not only yourself, but programmers, teams, and life. And there's a lot of life lessons to learn from it. You can open it up to any page and you'd say, yeah, I need to do that. And that's not from us. It's because there is a lot of wisdom out there in the world and we've collected it. So we think it's something worth having 
And it's not only just for programming managers, any manager we've been told and we believe would benefit from having this book. So, and the other is uh, be well and stay safe. And if you want more, I recommend that people visit our website, which is managingtheunmanageable.net. And on there, you'll find not only the rules, uh, more rules of thumb, like you find in the book, but also we have a bunch of other information, many of the presentations Ron have given, Ron and I have given, the interviews, PowerPoint slide decks. Uh, it's, it's filled uh, with information that could be helpful to you if, in fact, you found this podcast interesting. <laughs> awesome advice. All right, we're going to end the show there. The book is Managing the Unmanageable. I'm going to get the hardcover. You should, too. If you liked our show, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Leave us a rating. Mickey, thanks for joining the show today. We appreciate your time and your insights. My pleasure. It was, it was fun.